And I'd just like to affirm that word from the other Phil this morning for us to be more daring in the year ahead. The leaders of the church really believe that that's God's calling in our life for the year ahead for us to step out in our faith and to grow in our faith and be stretched and challenged in our faith. So let's be more daring, both as individuals and as a church together. And let's see what God's going to do in 2019. Okay, uh, who knows where that is or what it's called? Hadrian's Wall and what's it called, that particular bit? The Sycamore Gap. Apparently, I don't know how they know this, but it's the most photographed tree in the United Kingdom. I don't know if someone's sitting there with a ticker counting, but I certainly took a picture of it when I went up to visit it in November. And yeah, it's, it's a little gap in Hadrian's Wall and there's one solitary sycamore tree standing there. Mankind is good at building walls, aren't we? It seems to be our favourite pastime. They keep people out and make us feel safe on the inside. It's a security thing, isn't it? The trouble is, they don't always work. Hadrian's Wall, for example, was built to keep the Scots out. (laughs) Yeah, better luck next time. (laughs) Donald Trump is in the news because he can't find anyone to pay for his wall between the US and Mexico. Mexico, understandably, don't want to pay for it, and his government won't pay for it either. Other times, the walls which surround us aren't anything to do with us. We didn't build them, maybe other people did, or it's just our circumstances that are surrounding us, hemming us in and diminishing our lives. Thankfully, though, God is an expert at dismantling walls and creating something new in the gap like this sycamore tree. And this picture reminds me of a connection between two people in the Bible. A guy in the Old Testament called Abraham. God made a promise to him on a starry night that he was going to have a big family with many descendants. And then one of those distant relatives pops up in the New Testament. He's called Zacchaeus and he of course climbed a sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus. Both men were hindered by barriers in their lives that they could do nothing about. Abram and his wife Sarah were childless and very old. It was too late for them. And yet God kept telling Abram that they were going to have a big family. Abram believed God, but he struggled to see past the gynecological problems. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but his track record wasn't great. He had things to confess and wrongs to put right. And no one else thought Zacchaeus was good enough to see Jesus. Now, if you go to the Sycamore Gap and you're walking along Hadrian's Wall, when you get to that dip, it's just a tree and a dip that you look down on. It's nothing to look at from that angle. But when you look through the wall from the side, it's a different vision. It's a tree flourishing in the gap. Same tree, just a different perspective. 
And that's kind of what God did with Abram and Zacchaeus. He helped them see their lives from a different perspective. And that perspective is salvation. And God's salvation is at one and the same time both cosmic and very personal. And God was the one person in a position to change their future and transform their world. All they had to say was, yes, I believe your word to me, your promise of salvation. Do you ever wonder what God sees in you? I don't know what barriers you face, but God does. And I believe he wants to lead you past those barriers into the wide open vistas of salvation. He wants to reveal to you how you can live a fruitful life as part of his family tree of faith. And all you have to do is put your faith in the promises God makes to you and welcome the Savior into your home and he will transform your life. So what did God see in Abram? If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. If not, just listen. And David Morell is going to come and read Abram's story to us now. Thanks, David. So Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. 
You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephraimites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergeshites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, David. So what did God see in Abram? Well, the first thing he saw was a father. And in Sarah, he saw a mother. They were barren and spent. Their wall was childlessness. All Abram wanted was a son and an heir and some land to pass on to him. All Sarah wanted was a child. Their hearts were broken, and you can hear the heart in Abram's response to God. You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, Abram was a true pioneer of faith. When God called him, he responded immediately and went. But that doesn't mean that his faith was some sort of meek, compliant thing, that he just did what he was told. No, his was a faith which was grappled with and a disappointment which was voiced to God. And at no point does God impose his will on on Abram. God is happy to get into it with Abram because he knows the man's heart and he also knows his human frailty. So God takes him out to look at the dark sky. You know that feeling when when you look at a dark sky? And all these stars start to appear before you and you feel tiny, don't you? I'm sure Abram felt tiny in his situation. And then God said to him, start counting, Abram, if you can. You aren't just going to have one son. You're going to have many sons and daughters. And yes, you are going to be a father. But I see much more than that in you. When I look at you, says God, I see a father of faith. He saw a father of faith. And Abram, and that's why he changed his name to Abraham. That's what it says. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And later on in the New Testament, when Paul's writing to the church in Rome, he says, Against all hope, Abram in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, not just one. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And because Abraham believed the promise, God then entered into a covenant of salvation with him. And what strikes me about that covenant that David's just read to us is how down to earth it is. When we say a salvation, we, we tend to think of the salvation of our individual souls. That's what many of us have been brought up to see that as. And it is that. But this covenant here is all about Abram and the family he's going to have and the physical place 
they will be able to call home after they are saved from slavery in Egypt in 400 years' time. That's a long-term plan, isn't it? I find a year scary enough, but there's 400 years for you. And that physical place was right where Abram was standing. Imagine that. At the time, he was just a sojourner in what was other people's land. But in due course, God was going to give it to his descendants. God, therefore, instructed Abram to make a sacrifice of animals. And just listening to it, it seems strange to our ears, doesn't it? It seems alien to us today. It's just a little bit messy. What we can see in this act, though, is a holy, fiery God who comes down and confirms his promises to Abram in the midst of the blood and guts and mess of life on earth. Because that's what it's like. And we might not like how God goes about it. We prefer things a bit more sanitized today. We've got our sanitizer and we like to keep our hands clean and all of that. But it's not up to us how God determines to save us. It really isn't. Because salvation belongs to God. We are free to come up with our own salvation alternatives. But they're not going to save us. For the simple reason we can't save ourselves. Now sure we might be able to put a base on the moon. As we've been hearing on the news this week. But do you know what? That won't solve our problems either. Mankind will always adventure and pioneer and be out there. And I think that's a good thing. But it's not going to solve our problems putting a base on the moon. Or taking a picture of the furthermost thing in the sky. That's also happened this week. All we're doing by going to these places is transporting our problems out there. It doesn't solve them. And I can't imagine the residents of the moon will be that chuffed that we're going to put a base there. You can just imagine the clangers (laughs) and the soup dragon will be having kittens. Sorry if you're under 50, you might not understand that joke. They're probably all right with Wallace and Gromit coming for a grand day out because they went home again, didn't they? Perhaps they might say, well, what's wrong with the planet you've got? It's lovely, is it not? It's kind of tailor-made for you. Why not stay down there? God's covenant of salvation is much better and bigger than anything we could come up with anyway. However clever or however big our imaginations are, they're not that big. And God's covenant of salvation points forward to a kingdom of salvation that is all-encompassing. It's not hypothetical. It involves real people. Mums and dads, sons and daughters, generation after generation. It's real places and redeemed places, past, present and future. And yes, it involves the whole of creation too, groaning and decaying as it is now and crying out for humanity to start living up to our glorious calling as the children of God. And that's what God saw in Abram and Sarah and Moses and Miriam and then David and then Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna and then perfectly in Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, he saw them all as his glorious children. And Jesus, therefore, 
his glorious Son, came into this world to show us what this covenant looks like in flesh and blood. Tracing his roots back to David and Abram, he showed us in the way he lived his life the potential which God sees in you and me. And then he made that potential possible in the way he died, in the way he rose again and ascended to heaven where he is right now, thereby making a way for you and me and anyone else to be grafted into God's family tree through faith in Jesus Christ. However big you think God's salvation is, it is bigger. And this whole book is a story of salvation. If you want to sum it up in four words, this is a story of salvation. As salvation words scattered throughout this book in Hebrew and Greek everywhere. Just as if a farmer had gone out into his field and started to sow his seed generously and liberally, not worrying about what kind of ground it lands on or what kind of person it reaches. On the contrary, God's salvation seed reaches everyone and it it goes as far as you and me today. So what does God see in you and me? I don't know, but if we're honest, perhaps a mixture of doubt and faith. God makes promises to us to bless us and make us fruitful. But how do we respond? Sometimes with faith, like Abraham, yes, I believe. And sometimes with doubt as well, like Abraham, I just can't see it. Or I'm childless. And you haven't changed that, Lord. It's difficult for us, whatever the wall we are facing. Nevertheless, when God looks at you, he sees your salvation potential in Jesus Christ. He sees a glorious son or a glorious daughter just waiting to be revealed. That's who you are. That's what he sees in you. You know, it's encouraging to see that God worked with Abram and Sarah in their doubts and in their waiting. And boy, did they wait a long time. A big chunk of faith is to do with waiting. And we'd be lying if we said that that is easy or straightforward. It's absolutely not. But if we take Kingsley's advice from last week's sermon and say, okay, God, I trust you to be in control, then we can relax a little bit. And that glorious human being that God sees in you and me will begin to reveal itself. And that's something worth eagerly waiting for, is it not? And in the meantime, all we have to do is believe. So uh, we've got a week of prayer and fasting coming up in a couple of weeks. So here's a suggested prayer for us to go into that week, taking out the New Testament. And it's this. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And let's also take it together corporately as a church. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's take that prayer out for a spin and see what God does here in our lives. So let's just take a moment to apply it right now in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we believe, despite sometimes all appearances to the contrary, that you're at work in our lives. And Lord, we confess that uh, sometimes our doubt and our unbelief wins over. 
and we just can't see a way through. We can't see that gap in the wall. But Lord, I pray for every person here today, and including myself, uh, for the things that tower over us, that just seem to engulf us and make us feel small and ineffective and helpless. Lord, I thank you that you're in heaven and you look down and all you see is a little line and you show us the way through. And Lord, I pray that for every person sitting here this morning, that you will show them the gap, your way through in faith in Christ for them today. Amen. So let's have a look at a worked example of one of these glorious human beings. What did God see in Zacchaeus? Jane Cook's going to come now and read Zacchaeus' story for us. Thanks, Jane. The account is recorded in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So... He ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree so he could see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, for this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Amen. Thanks, Jane. Do you know I've been saying Zacchaeus all these years, but I think I prefer Zacchaeus. (laughs) That just sounds better. Thanks, Jane. Next picture. Zacchaeus was delighted. Jesus came to stay. And at 58 years old, it turns out I can still jump. (laughs) Might just be a couple inches, but there you go. Zacchaeus was more than a little surprised, I think, but nevertheless delighted that Jesus was interested in his life. His wall was financial security. Yeah, we all like a bit of that, don't we? He was a tax expert. Nothing wrong with that, except he was clearly using his position and expertise to line his own pockets. So um, naturally, people around him were thinking and saying, what does Jesus see in this guy? Doesn't Jesus know who he is? And the answer is, yes, Jesus did know who Zacchaeus was. All they could see, and Zacchaeus was a sinner, and of course they weren't wrong. They just couldn't see that flaw in themselves. But Jesus saw someone else. Jesus saw a son of Abraham, a man of faith. And in one simple action, Jesus dismantled the barrier which Zacchaeus had built between himself and God 
and his community. In short, Jesus came to stay. Salvation in the person of Jesus Christ moved into Zacchaeus's no doubt fancy home in Jericho and his whole world was transformed because that's what happens when Jesus comes to stay. And using the words of our church vision, Zacchaeus started to live up to his calling to be like Jesus at the heart of Jericho and beyond. His greedy, selfish little world expanded into a generous, selfless life of love, faith and hope. Because Jesus came to stay, God's kingdom of salvation came to stay, and the real Zacchaeus, the true Zacchaeus, began to appear. Suddenly, a lot poorer. There goes your prosperity gospel out the window where it belongs. But wonderfully richer in terms of friends, I'm sure he suddenly had a few of them, community, and his eternal future, which he is currently enjoying right now today. That's a good deal, I would say. And although Zacchaeus was already a Jew, he still needed grafted in to God's big faith family. He was a physical descendant of Abraham. He just wasn't living up to it. And he still needed salvation. And he received it when Jesus came to stay. And we see his faith. It doesn't mention his faith, but we see it through his restorative actions. Paying back what he had stolen times four and redistributing half of his wealth to people who were poorer than him. That's salvation too. And it looks wonderful. Not that he's earning his salvation, rather responding to it. Just like Jesus, the spirit of the sovereign Lord was suddenly on him, anointing him to proclaim good news to the poor as the true Zacchaeus begins to appear. A fruitful Zacchaeus, just like his ancestor Abraham, full of faith, blessing the people around him instead of robbing them. Who would have thought climbing a sycamore tree could make such a difference to a man's life? But it did, and all because it enabled him to see Jesus. Maybe today, like Zacchaeus, you need to climb a different tree. Perhaps you've been coming here to see what this Jesus is like. Well, hopefully, in the people you've met, you've caught a glimpse of something glorious that you would like to. It's called salvation, and God generously offers it to any and all who will believe his promise to them. That's what God sees in you today. He sees you, his son or his daughter, a glorious human being, forgiven, healed, whole, and part of its ever-growing family of salvation, flourishing and fruitful with his indwelling spirit working within you, shaping you, changing you, challenging you, cajoling you, empowering you to become the person you were made to be. Don't miss out on that. If you feel lost today, don't worry, because that is why Jesus, the Son of Man, came 
in the first place, to seek and to save the lost. It's time to come out from behind your wall and be found by Jesus, the Son of Man, because he wants to come and stay with you for good. And this is why he has given us this covenant meal right here, this simple meal of bread and wine. The bread represents his body given for us. And as Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, for your salvation today. And by taking it and sharing it with each other this morning, we are saying back to Jesus, we believe in you. We believe. Come and stay Come and bring your salvation to this house and to our lives and to your world today. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you that you are a covenant-making God. You make promises to us and you keep them. And Lord, we, we say today, we believe, help our unbelief. As we share this simple meal We remember that you sent your son Jesus to bring salvation for everyone. Not just one man and his wife or his family or his nation, but in every nation in your world, Lord. It's yours and we are yours. And we thank you for that today. And as we share this meal, Lord, we just commit afresh today to trust in you. And we say, dear Lord Jesus, forgive us for our sins, the things that we do wrong and have done wrong. By the blood shed on the cross by you, cleanse us this day and make us whole. Bring that new covenant in our lives today by your Holy Spirit. Transform us and change us. Turn us into the people you see that we just can't see sometimes. Make us into the glorious sons and daughters of your kingdom that all of creation is crying out to see. Begin with us today, Lord Jesus, as we lay our lives before you in simple faith and trust and thanksgiving in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen.